pray, Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may remember the premise of uh, the movie that came out a couple of years ago, Captain America Civil War. That was the one in which the uh, Avengers got divided among themselves, right, with half of them aligning with Captain America, the other half aligning with Iron Man. Um, how it kind of came about was that this villain, Helmet Zemo, um, terrorist, figured he didn't have to kill the Avengers if he could get them to kill each other. Um, so he worked toward that end to divide them, to get them fighting against each other so that their focus wouldn't be on him and stopping him. And I wonder this morning, what if the church in America is living out that story right now? Like, what if at this moment, this contentious moment in our nation as a whole, we have an enemy who is seeking to divide us specifically along the lines of conservative and progressive ideology. Um, and as the world's becoming more hostile to each other, what if he's getting us within the church to become more hostile within our own ranks to those who don't see political issues or cultural issues the same way we do? I wonder. I wonder if what's happening right now is there's blood being shed on the battlefields of Facebook feeds. I wonder if um, we're seeing marriages struggling because the two members of the marriage see politics differently. I wonder if we're seeing family members divided and to the point in which they're not speaking for long periods of time. And all the while we have an enemy who is seizing on the moment to increase the divide in our ranks. Um, I know that you've felt the tension in our cultural moment. Um, but I wonder if you've pulled back the curtain to kind of examine what's actually going on behind the scenes in the unseen realm. Um, so that's what we're going to try to do these next three weeks. We're starting a new series today called Christians in a Contentious Climate. And um, usually, for those of you who've been around here for a while, you know that we usually work through books of the Bible here at North Sub, so we spent almost two years working through the book of Acts recently, finished that. Um, but we as church leaders were thinking recently about how if, biblically, you are called to do ministry to one another, which we believe, and if, biblically, we as church leaders are called to equip you for ministry, as we believe that we are, then we need to make sure that we are equipping you for the actual fights you're finding yourselves in day after day, for the actual ministry opportunities that are presenting themselves to you. And we've heard enough from all of you um, about the struggles that you're having with family members and friends with whom you feel divided right now, and you're having a hard time navigating these difficult, tricky waters with believers and with unbelievers. And uh, it felt worth it to us to take three weeks and just pause leading up to this upcoming midterm election and work through three biblical passages that have something to say about how we Christians could be distinct. We could be a light in the darkness. We could be uh, presenting something different over these next three weeks leading up to this election. Now, 
I know some of you probably feel like, oh, great, here we go. I don't want to be talking about politics in church. I come to church to get away from politics. Um, many of us feel the same way. Um, but we've become convinced as church leaders that even if we wanted to get away from politics and just say, hey, that's two separate realms, we actually can't. It's actually impossible to do that. Um, our scriptures have something to say about political issues. They don't just leave us on our own to figure it out on our own devices. Um, we're convinced that a church that tries to remain strictly apolitical is actually making a strong political statement by doing so. And we believe that if Jesus is Lord of our lives, then he aims to be Lord of every square inch of our lives, including our political engagement. So for those reasons and others, we feel like it's best that we dive into this right now. Um, for a fuller answer to why we're doing this, um, you might see our highlights from this past Thursday. We sent out a kind of explanation, and there are paper copies of that on the back table on your way out um, with a fuller explanation. So would you open with me today as we dive into our sermon text to Ephesians chapter 6. That's the, where we're going to camp out today, so it's worth turning there and following along. I mean, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Some of the Pew Bibles, it should be right around page 1096. Um, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6. It's not about politics, but it has something to say about politics and our engagement therein. This is written by Paul. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, a church that he knew well and he's spent years with. Now he's in jail toward the end of his life writing this letter. And in where we find ourselves today in chapter 6 is part of the second half of this letter that really focuses on the practical implications of the glorious gospel that he presented in chapters 1 through 3. So some of those implications in the second half of the letter are that the gospel has implications for the way we speak to one another. The gospel has implications for the way we interact with each other in our homes. Uh, now we're going to see this final implication of the gospel in chapter 6, that if the gospel is true, if the good news of what Jesus did for us is true, then we have been released from our previous status as prisoners of war behind enemy lines. And when we were released, we were invited and commissioned to jump into the battle on God's side, fighting against the same enemy who captured us and had taken us prisoner originally. So I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. And if you just follow along there, read along with me and look for who that enemy is, the enemy who took us captive and the enemy with whom we are presently at war. Here's what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here's our big idea for today. Since our real enemy is Satan, let's devote our energy to fighting him. Since our real enemy is Satan, let's devote our energy to fighting him. We're going to see in this text, as we walk through it, we're going to see the source of our strength. We're going to see the weapons that we fight with, and we're going to take a look at our opponent. All of the illustrations and applications I'm going to make with regards to our current cultural divided moment um, 
I'm sure there will be questions that arise during this sermon. Please do text those in using the number in your bulletin. I plan to address those in the highlights this week. So first, our strength comes from verse 10. Um, and what we're going to see there is our strength is in the Lord's power, not in political power. So let me reread verse 10 as you look for that. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Notice what it didn't say. Be strong in the strength of your political party's might. Be strong in the strength of his might is what it says. But if we're honest with ourselves, we might be willing to admit sometimes that it doesn't always feel like the strength of his might is enough for our lived situations, right? So since the 70s, at least, American Christians have felt a mounting level of anxiety as we've seen things in our culture um, maybe go our way or not go our way and we feel like we're losing our place at the table some of us so we've seen the supreme court uh entrench the right to abortion we've seen prayer be taken out of the schools we've seen um, marriage be redefined and for many of us that's made us scared right like do i still have a place here in this country will i have a place here in this country when it's all said and done so there's fear and the question is, where do we go next with that fear? And so for some, the answer is, well, we need to withdraw as Christians in this culture. We need to kind of hunker down together, huddle up, and just kind of ride out the storm. Right? For others, it's no, we need to fight back. We need to boycott the businesses that are against what we believe in. We need to expose our opponents' arguments for what they are. We need to mobilize voters to gain a powerful voting block that can take back power and get us a seat at the table again. Either way, or either of those two responses, what the world is tending more and more to see in us as evangelical Christians, if you read what they write about us, is they're seeing a people who are scared. Um, like the kind of scared that happens when you have something, but you feel that you're losing it. Right? It's slipping out of your, our grasp. They can see some inconsistencies, right? So they see and note that some of us have been willing to overlook sins or offenses committed by those in our own political party, whatever our own political party is, while condemning the same sin when it takes place by someone in the political party we don't agree with. Right? Um, so they conclude that we're willing to get political power, regain it, by any means necessary. Right? And some of their criticisms of us might be overblown, right? But, but I wonder if some of them might have something to them, right? Um, what if we look in the mirror and realize we have been a little bit willing to use some the end justifies the means type of thinking in our political engagement as Christians? What if they look at us and we look in the mirror and we see that we have been criticizing sin in our outgroup that we haven't been willing to criticize in our in-group, politically speaking. To the extent that we look in the mirror and realize we've been guilty of some of that, Ephesians 6.10 has something to say to us. It asks us, is our God so small that we have to scream at the top of our lungs every time there's an election or a, a Supreme Court nomination to get our way? Um, it says be strong in the Lord and in the strength of of his might. And the question is, is the Bible painting a picture of a God who needs 
the president to be aligned with him and who needs a majority in Congress and who needs a majority on the Supreme Court bench in order to accomplish his purposes? Is that the sort of God that we worship? Of course not, right? This is the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. This is the God who silences a hurricane with a word. This is a God who holds the hearts of every king on this earth in his hands like and turns it like a stream of water. Right? That's the way the Bible talks about our God. He doesn't need political power to accomplish his purposes on this earth. And for most of church history, we haven't enjoyed political power or position, have we? Right? The church, for the majority of its existence in most places, has been a minority in the culture. We've been outsiders looking in. We've been the sort who subvert the dominant ethos of the day by love, even love for those who are hostile to us. Right? That's often when the church has actually been its healthiest and when it's grown the most. Now, that of course doesn't mean that we seek persecution or that we hope for wicked rulers, right? Of course not. Right? We pray, we vote, we participate in the system in a way that is hopeful that we can influence it in a godly direction, of course, and we rejoice when folks get elected and policies get enacted that are in line with the heart of King Jesus, right? But what it means is we don't freak out when that doesn't happen. We don't lose our peace when the person we wanted elected doesn't get elected or when a policy gets enacted that's contrary to what we would desire. We know the reality of where all this is headed. We are not losing this battle, right? We know how the story ends. We are winning right now, no matter what it looks like. And we are on the right side of history as long as we stand with King Jesus, who in the end is going to be on the right side of history as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he's Lord. Our strength, according to Ephesians 6.10, is in his might. So that brings us to our weapons. Our weapons are the Lord's weapons, not the world's weapons. That's what we see in verse 11. Our weapons are the Lord's weapons, not the world's weapons. Listen for that as I reread verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In the armor of God that's talked about here in Ephesians 6, we have defensive weapons and we have offensive weapons, uh, but they're all kind of grouped together as the armor, and there's a list of those pieces of the armor later in the chapter that I wish we had time to get into, but we won't have a chance to get into today. What I do want to point out from verse 11 is that it's called the armor of God. I want to ask why that is. Why is it called the armor of God? For, for most of my Christian life, I've thought that it's the armor of God because it's the armor that God supplies or provides for us, right? And of course it is that. It is the armor that God provides for us. He does, but there's actually something more here. If you were one of Paul's original readers in Ephesus and you were well-versed with the Old Testament, you might recognize that this is more than just the armor that God provides. This is actually, there's a lot of overlap with the actual armor that God is said to wear in the Old Testament. So just a few examples of where God and his anointed one, his servant, who we know is Jesus, the Messiah, wears some of the weapons that are listed in Ephesians 6. Here's what it says in Isaiah 49, speaking of the Messiah. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. In Isaiah 11, it says about this Messiah, righteousness shall be the belt of his ways, faithfulness the belt of his loins. And in Isaiah 59, 
speaking of God himself, says he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So this is more than just armor God gives us. He's actually giving us his own armor. When we say we're fighting with the Lord's weapons, we mean it's actually the Lord's weapons that we get to take into battle. But that raises the question, why is it so serious of a situation that we need the Lord's weapons themselves in order to engage in it. I think that answer to that question has everything to do with who our opponent is. Um, we're going to talk more about our opponent in the third point this evening. But for now, we just want to note that our opponent is Satan. And if we thought our liberal cousin or our conservative uncle was a tough opponent to deal with, uh, we need to remember that we are at war presently with Satan who's called the God of this world, right? Um, Verse 11 tells us, and this is what we'll note about him in this part of the text, that he's a schemer. Do you see that in verse 11? You may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That means he rarely comes and attacks us head on, like with a direct frontal assault. What he prefers to do is to manipulate us, right? To make evil look attractive or desirable or to make evil look like it's legitimate for Christians to participate in, right? So, um, how's he doing that today? That's a question. So, today, what kind of schemes is the devil enacting right in the middle of our contentious political climate to try to get Christians uh, off track? And I think here's one. I think he's working to get us to see one political party's platform or the other as the way to see the world, right? He wants us to see either Fox News or CNN as painting the narrative of what's going on all around us. He wants us to think that it's legitimate to filter all of our thinking about current events through the grid of either conservative ideology or progressive ideology, and what's so bad about that? Maybe we, it may be helpful to kind of think about it uh, with regards to a graphic here. So imagine these are two spheres, uh, one here on the right that represents the platform of the Republican Party, and one here on the left that represents the platform of the Democratic Party, right? One's on the left, one's on the right. Now imagine we introduce a third sphere that represents the practices, policies, what would be the platform of King Jesus, when he reigns, and by the way, he will reign, even on this earth, and if you look at Revelation 20, it will be a thousand year reign when King Jesus is reigning. But where would we chart the sphere of the rule of King Jesus? Where would we put that? Where does the kingdom of God, how does it align? How do we chart it? How do we map it with regard to left and right in our current system, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party? Like, is it kind of like over here, or is it maybe like over here, or... Where is it? I think what the enemy's trying to do, Satan's lie, is that it's a perfect fit with either this one or this one. Like they're concentric circles. You can just lay one over the other, and uh, that's what it would be. So he does that. He doesn't care which way we go, but he does that. So he'll get in, if we're liberally inclined, he'll get in our ear and say, hey, don't you see how the scriptures align so well with 
the Democratic Party platform and their care and concern for the least of these in society, the uh, poor, the widow, the oppressed, the downtrodden, right? The Democrats are the ones looking out for them. So shouldn't you be aligned there? And isn't the Democratic Party more in line with God's heart for diversity as seen in the scriptures, right? He starts to work his way in and then he says, also, while I've got you, abortion is the same way. You need to support abortion if you're going to protect women who are among the most vulnerable in our society. You see what he does? You see the lie? Or if we're conservatively inclined, he'll get in our ear and say, you know what, the most vulnerable in society are the unborn. The Republicans are the only ones looking out for them. And furthermore, the Republicans are the only ones who understand how dangerous this sexual revolution is going to be if taken to its logical conclusion. You need to be aligned with this party. Okay, so he's in our ear, and he says, hey, and by the way, it's worth it to do whatever it takes to get Republicans in power. If that means turning your back on black boys in the south side of Chicago, if that means turning your back on Christian refugees who are fleeing ISIS and need some place to escape, if that means turning your back on women who have been sexually assaulted, whatever it takes, we need to get Republicans in power. Do you see the lie? Do you see how he gets in there and tries to get us to take it all, hook, line, and sinker? He doesn't care which way we lean. He just wants us to do more than lean. He wants us to be all in with one party or another. That's when he's won. Those are his schemes, at least one of them, that he's using today. He wants us to think it's appropriate to do evil so that good will result. And the evil that he wants us to do is to turn our backs on what some of what God says in order to accomplish the rest of what God says. Now listen, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the rule of King Jesus is somehow perfectly balanced between the two and they're equally good or equally bad, right? That would be naive. They probably aren't, right? And I have my opinions just like any of you do about where, how much overlap there is here or here, right? Um... All I'm trying to establish is that the answer isn't that it's this. And the answer isn't that it's this. That can't be where we go as Christians. That would be idolatry for us. That would be elevating a man-made system made by sinful human beings who are bound to have sin creep into their policies and agendas and elevating it to a position of saying this is sanctioned by God. We can't go there as Christians and we certainly can't go there when it comes to the level of the rhetoric, what's been spoken about, the tone that's used by this side or this side. Now, I want to address something because some of you have brought it up to me before. This isn't the first time that I've addressed some of these issues. We're just going into it in more depth here today. Um, But what some of you have said to me in the past when I've preached on some of these things is, hey, Tim, you seem like you're being a little bit harder on conservatives than you are on liberals. You know, there's problems on both sides. Why don't you just kind of make it even for us? And I get that, and I do want to affirm that there are problems, real problems on both sides. Um, But there are two reasons, actually, why I haven't and probably won't um, make it my aim to be 50-50 in terms of using illustrations and applications on both sides. Here are the two reasons. One, this is a real congregation that I have the privilege to preach to, right? Real people that I know and love. And it just so happens that in our congregation, uh, more people here this morning lean conservative than lean liberal, right? So I 
address issues with Fox News maybe more than I address issues uh, that take place on the CNN side for the same reason that I address possible idolatry of the Cubs' success more than I address possible idolatry of the Yankees' success, right? Not because one is worse than the other, but because the people who are actually here are a little bit more prone to go one way than the other. But there's another reason um, why I'm not sure it needs to be 50-50 in terms of what we address, and it has to do with these schemes that are talked about in verse 11, these schemes of the devil. They're not the direct head-on assault, but the schemes. So it's important to me that I read and get my news across the political spectrum. I'll read opinion pieces from CNN. I'll read opinion pieces on Fox News, just using those two as examples because they're on different sides of the spectrum. When I read an opinion piece on CNN, it's often, not always, but often framed in terms of, and the evangelicals are wrong, and those people who believe the Bible are backwards, and therefore we need to X, right? On the other side, when I read Fox News opinion pieces, they're often framed in terms of, hey, this is the biblical position on this. Here are some scriptures that are poorly exegeted to make our point. And if you're a Christian and an evangelical Christian, you really need to line up with this uh, unless you want to be violating what God thinks, right? Not always, but I see it very often as I read these articles. So, as someone who's given my life to shepherding the flock, shepherding a congregation, real people that I care about, um, I'm not as concerned (laughs) that the people in our congregation are going to read this article that's hostile to Christianity and say, that's a really good point they made. That's a really good idea. I'm going to buy in. I am a little more concerned that they're going to read something that may be actually a good idea over here, but that's been given like a stamp as if this is what King Jesus believes and this is what Christians need to stand for, and that someone in our congregation who's newer in the faith and doesn't know the Bible as well will just read that and say, well, I guess that's what Christians believe. So, it's a passion of mine. I feel zealous for the lives of the flock that we need to be protected from the schemes, right? The head-on attack sometimes is easier to deal with than the schemes that are just subtle. They're trying to get us to think that one way of looking at immigration or uh, distribution of resources or affirmative action or Israel, that this is the biblical way to look at this. I get concerned about that. Friends, let's pray that... God will give us eyes to see what's happening, what's actually happening around us as ideas are getting exchanged. Like, that we'll see the schemes of the devil, that we won't be enticed by them, and that he won't use us to spread his schemes even further with a click of the mouse or a retweet of something that we read. Because he's a schemer, that's why we need to use the weapons that God has given us, right? Not the weapons that the world uses, um, malicious posts on Facebook, retweets of articles we've never actually read, um, villainizing the other side, assuming the worst of their motives, boycotting businesses when they do something we don't like, always needing to get the last word in every conversation. Those are the the weapons the world uses. And actually those weapons won't do any good against our real enemy, our spiritual enemy. Once we become aware of the actual battle we're in, once we become aware of our actual opponent, we realize we've got to put on the belt of truth. We've got to put on the breastplate of righteousness, and we've got to put on the shoes that are fitted with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. That's the only way we're going to be able to stand in this battle.
and standing is actually what we're called to do. Do you see that there in verse 11? We're given defensive weapons in the armor. We're given offensive weapons in the armor because what we're called to do is to stand in the battle. That's an appropriate posture to take when a battle's raging all around you only if the decisive victory has already been won, right? And that's the situation we find ourselves in as Jesus died in our place taking the punishment that we deserved for sin. And as he rose again from the dead, he won the decisive victory. It's only a matter of time before our opponents are finally vanquished. And so the job that we've been called to is to, according to this passage, stand the ground that Jesus has already taken. To not give ground, but stand there and use our offensive and defensive weapons to fight face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat with our enemy as we seek to preserve what's been won by our king. We get the great privilege of doing so as a result of his saving us. That was the longest of three points. We'll finish up briefly with this third uh, about our opponent. In verse 12, we see our opponent is Satan, not those on the other side of the political aisle. Our opponent is Satan, not those on the other side of the political aisle. Listen for that as I read verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So we're saying again. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If we needed Paul to make it any clearer that um, there's no reason for Christians to go to bed anxious about our human political opponents, here it is in verse 12. It couldn't be any clearer. We do not wrestle with humans who have flesh and blood. We may think that that's who we wrestle with, but that's exactly what our actual enemy wants us to think, that that's our opponent, that those are the ones that we're wrestling with. Our real enemy, according to verse 12, is the devil and the forces who are under his power, right? According to verse 12, there are many of them, it certainly sounds like, the forces under his power. It sounds like in verse 12 there's some sort of hierarchy of forces under the devil's power because the word uh, rulers and authorities is used. Um, there are four terms used there in verse 12 to talk about the same group, and they are demons, right? That's the word we use for them. They're sergeants and generals and princes and governors in Satan's army. So, question that some of us might be thinking at this moment. What's the relationship between our demonic enemies and our human political or cultural opponents? What is the interaction between the two? Like the worst of those on the other side of the spectrum from where we are, when we think about them and how they're so opposed and hostile to everything we believe in, like are they soldiers in Satan's army? What, what are, what are, what's their relationship to Satan? How do we think about them? You ever think about that? Well, it should be clear by now, I think, that they are not soldiers in Satan's army army otherwise our war would be with flesh and blood they're not our real opponents even if they were wrong on every single political and moral and truthful issue they wouldn't be the soldiers in satan's army they are cap they they are captives behind enemy lines who have been taken captive by him and are being made to do his bidding like they've been brainwashed and blinded are some of the words that the new testament uses so um where do I get that? Okay, the um, Re- Revelation 12 calls Satan the deceiver of this world. Second Corinthians 4 says that he's the God of this world, 
who blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. This same book, Ephesians, back in chapter 2, told us that we all, actually, every single one of us, without exception, all of us were once under his power. And during that time when we were under his power, we were being made to do his bidding. So the question that raises for us is, why are we raging against those who have been brainwashed? Why don't we rage against the one who's doing the brainwashing? That's why I love the last song we're going to sing today and this one particular line in it. We're going to sing this song, and, it, and we've sung here before, and it has this line, Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against, anybody remember it? The captor, right? Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. I can't think of another line that would be better to sing in your head next time you're in a political debate or discussion or you get on Facebook and you're like, I'm fired up. Just think about that. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. That's what can make us distinct in this cultural moment. Like when we're like so convinced that someone's really, really wrong about everything politically, they very well might be. But the depth of our conviction about their wrongness should be at least equaled by the depth of our affection for that person for whom Christ died. Like, be angry. That's not the answer to stop being angry. Like, be angry, but be angry at the God of this age who has blinded that person. Don't be angry at them. Right? Love them. Fight Satan by showing kindness to them, a weapon that comes from the character of God himself. Listen, I feel myself getting worked up just like you do when people are just making political arguments that are just so ridiculous, right? I feel it too. The single most important thing for me, helpful thing for me in those moments has been to think about Matthew 9. Jesus looks out on the crowds and it says he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, right? What if we took that attitude towards the world out there, including our political opponents? Not that there are a bunch of enemies hostile to me that I've got to fight against today, but man, have compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. That would be a different approach, a different witness than what the world sees right now in the Christian church. It would call for compassionate kindness, not venomous attack. We could save our attack then for Satan when we fight with the armor of God. Russell Moore says it this way, if we don't oppose demons, we will demonize opponents. If we don't oppose demons, we'll end up demonizing our opponents. And all of us are tired of the demonization that's going on in this world where everybody's just treating each side like they're the devil, right? But the problem with all that isn't that we're being too aggressive in our fighting. The problem is that we're fighting against the wrong people. We're fighting against human enemies when our real enemy is free to do whatever he wants without resistance. So I want to finish up just talking about what it would look like to fight with Satan, like we're talking about. Like, what does this actually look like in real life to live the way we're talking about today, to use the weapons at our disposal and the armor of God in our lived experience? Well, I think about our feet being fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, and maybe one way is this. What if we actively, strategically planned out how to show unheard of kindness to someone who's a political opponent of ours? 
Like Thanksgiving's coming up in a little while. Maybe that's the time. You know there's going to be that relative there who's going to get on that political rant that's just going to get under your skin and you're going to get you all worked up. Like what if you planned in advance not just how to show civility to them, like the absence of hostility, but like actively a way that you could show kindness to them. Maybe that would be a way to fight against our real enemy. Second, be morally consistent. I think about that when it comes to the breastplate of righteousness that we're called to put on in the armor of God. Do you realize that most of the world around us now no longer rejects Christianity because of any intellectual problem they have with it, or it's not primarily because they cognitively disagree with what we believe. Most of the world around us is rejecting Christianity because they're finding us increasingly to be morally bankrupt, in their opinion, right? And so our enemy, Satan, is looking for every opportunity to prove them right and to, to perpetuate that narrative that those Christians are hypocrites. They're morally bankrupt. And so any time that he can point to something where we criticize sin in a, the other political party from what we agree with and don't say a word about it when it's done by someone in our own political party, he's going to latch onto that and show, see, look, they're the hypocrites I told you they were. Christianity can't be real because those people are immoral. They're hypocrites. Let's not give him any excuse to do that. Finally, what if you made friends with a Christian who thinks differently than you politically? Um, what if you talk to them and hear them out? Sure, try to persuade them. There's nothing wrong with trying to persuade somebody. But before you do, actually listen fully to what they have to say. And then it becomes harder to demonize somebody when that somebody isn't just an imaginary opponent somewhere out there in the social media sphere, but it's like a real living person that you love and that you're spending time with in like face-to-face on a regular basis. That one becomes increasingly important when we consider, and this is, I wish we could preach a long time on this, but just to make the point and just to make sure we're all on the same page with this, like evangelicals who are white and evangelicals who are black view political issues very differently, statistically speaking, right? And that fact should at least give us pause before we're so certain that there's one Christian way to land on the political spectrum, right? Some of these conversations could go a long way in helping us to stop demonizing the other side. Well, hey, Helmut Zemo in Captain America's Civil War, um, he almost succeeded in splitting the Avengers for good, getting them to kill each other. We have a scarier enemy in some ways, actually. He's got more resources than the Avengers villain had at his disposal, and he's got a lot more experience, too. Like, for thousands of years, our enemy has been rising up and tearing down kingdoms, it matters very little to him, actually, who's in power in America in 2019 and 2020, which side wins these upcoming midterm elections. He was even willing to give Jesus Christ control of all the kingdoms of the earth, if that's what it would take to achieve his purposes. He gets excited about this, that he could hold out the allure of either right-wing rule or left-wing rule to us, and that we would grasp for that at all costs, that we'd go after it hard, and that he'd, in the process, get us off mission, get us forgetting who the real enemy is, and get us to turn on one another, even within the church, fighting against each other, while he's free to go about his business doing what he loves to do, 
whether conservatives or liberals are in power. He would gladly give us any of that, any political power in exchange for that. The question is, are we going to let him win? Are we going to remain ignorant of his schemes, blind to what he's doing in the unseen realm? Or will we, forget about church in America, think about North Sub right now as I ask this, will we as a church rise up arm in arm, conservative and progressive, united in our affection for one another, even when we're not necessarily united in our political opinions. I'm really excited to sing this last song together. Let me pray before we do. Lord, we don't know whether you've called us for such a time as this for this reason, in a moment in which the world around us is becoming increasingly hostile, maybe you called us to this place and time as a church, in part so that we could be something strange in this world, a collection of people, conservative and liberal, who are united in brotherly and sisterly affection and love for one another despite our disagreements who can extend a hand to one another despite thinking very differently about world and uh, about the world and about political solutions to the problems that exist there Lord we want to be that sort of a witness that sort of a testimony in this world make us increasingly that and help the world to see that in you there's something different and that this was only possible because of you in Jesus name amen